So hi, this is Michelle Carlo back again, and you're on Fish Out of Agua at Radio Free Brooklyn. So what I'm going to be doing for the next 26 weeks is I'm going to be serializing the book I wrote. Yep, I wrote a book. It's called, Duh, Fish Out of Agua, and it's the story of a red-headed, freckle-faced Puerto Rican, that would be me, growing up in an Italian-Irish neighborhood, that would be Washington Square, in the Bronx, yes, that Bronx, in the 1970s. Well, actually, it's more than the 1970s. The book starts in 1965, and it ends in 2007, so there's a lot of ground to cover there. It's like 47 years, so we're going to be talking about a lot of the history of New York City besides, like, my personal history. Yeah, you're going to hear a lot about the New York Mets. Yay! You're going to hear some stuff about graffiti. Whoa. You're going to hear about the blackout and the summer of Sam and um, the not so wholesome summer of 1969 at St. Peter's Playground. Yes, I was alive in 1969. Might not have been that old, but I was old enough to know some things like how to play junkie freeze tag. Yeah, that's right. But we're not going to hear about that right now. Um, We're going to start from the beginning the beginning of the book and we're going to my plan is to do like two stories uh for every show and think about this this is how cosmic that I knew this was like so totally going to work out because there are 58 short stories but I mean short I mean like like two or three page stories in the book and I have 26 weeks to do the show so you're going to hear two stories every week how cool is that Oh, my God. Okay, so here's the other thing that you should know is that I don't know how many of you out there are familiar with this New York City storytelling collective known as The Moth. Well, they're actually kind of international now, but back when I started doing it in the early aughts, I love to say aughts, like how how often do you get to live in the century where you could do that? So anyway, um, most, most of the book came from the stories I would do at the Moth Story Slams. And I don't even remember my train of thought. Oh, yes, this is one of the stories that I told at the Moth Story Slam, and we're going to open up with this. So I'm going to play a song from this time period. It's 1970 in Spanish Harlem. I'm going to be loft at the Puerto Rican Day Parade, and this would be one of the songs that you would have heard back then. It's by Fanillo All-Stars, and it's called Smoke on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you. 
That was Smoke by the Fania All-Stars. So it's a week since the election, and we all know now what we're going to be dealing with for the next four years, and a large part of this country is cheering and couldn't be happier. It's like chocolate cake and ice cream all the time for them. But for another large part of the country, there are a lot of people I know that couldn't get out of bed the next day. It was that bad for them. And there were another large there is another large amount of people that I know that immediately took to the streets in protest. Yes. Protest. Protest was a big form of thing in the 1970s. I'm telling you people, people thought that 1968 was the worst year ever. People thought that the world was going to like go to hell in a hot air balloon and we were all going to be lying in the gutter with our throats slit open from ear to ear because like the FALN was blowing shit up. Like they, they bombed Francis Tavern, like bombs are blowing up in mailboxes. This is a Puerto Rican separatist group that were bombing. Shit. So people think like bombing started with ISIS and, and uh, Al Qaeda. No, honey. And it, it, this shit was going on like from the sixties, like, I remember reading in the newspaper, because, yes, I used to read the Daily News with my dad every morning, like the weathermen blew up this brownstone on 10th Street, like right near Washington Square Park. And it was and you want to hear a crazy thing? It was actually next door to the brownstone that the weathermen blew up because these friggin idiots were trying to make a bomb and well, here goes the building. We're all dead. Ah. But um, the actors, Dustin Hoffman. And I believe Richard Dreyfus. And if you don't know who they are, honey, go Google them because they are two of one of the they are two of the finest character actors of their generation. Well, anyway, they were young roommates that were like studying acting somewhere. I want to say actor studio it might not be right. You can Snopes me on that shit if you want. I don't care. But they were like living like next door. Could you imagine like you live next door to a to like where these like um uh, like. Oh, God, what is the word for it? Protest humans were blowing shit up. I got the word. It's called dissidents. Yes, dissidents. But enough about them. I wanted to uh, start Fish Out of Agua going. So this is the first story of Fish Out of Agua, which takes place in New York City in 1970. And it's called Spanish on Sunday, part one. I was 10 years old when my mother told me my great-grandmother was dead and my immediate reaction was relief. There would be no more riding the subway, the bus, and another bus to that island where all the buildings looked like prisons and no more visiting the hospital that smelled of chicken soup, Clorox, and puke, where even the trees and pigeons looked at us as if they had been exiled there to die as well. On the day of my great-grandmother's funeral, my family gathered at my abuela's apartment in Washington Heights to mourn. In six sprawling rooms with French doors, crumbling moldings, and a long dark hallway with framed prints of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, long-haired Jesus, Jesus. As always when all the family were together, the kitchen table had been moved into the living room and held enough food to feed an entire neighborhood. Pots of gandules, trays of pasteles and algaporias, pernil, a roast turkey, tostones, maduros, and my favorite, saludos, was spilling over its edges, but for once, I wasn't hungry. The grown-ups took their places to the dining room to eat, while my brother and cousins, who were all younger than I, went to the back room to play. I didn't feel like playing either, so I wandered off alone. I stopped at the beginning of the hallway and looked at John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Jesus. Why did almost every house I had ever been brought to have these pictures? 
I knew John F. Kennedy was supposed to save the country, and they killed him. I knew Martin Luther King was supposed to save the black people, and then he was killed. And I knew Jesus was supposed to have saved mankind, and they, of course, of course killed him, too. Jesus stared back at me. He looked like a hippie. My family told me to stay away from hippies. They were dirty, and they were on drugs. Because drugs were what made people not come home anymore and made whoever was left behind cry. I tried to knock Jesus off the wall, but he was way beyond my reach. The sound of my abuela's slippered footsteps interrupted my communion with El Señor, which literally means the man, and figuratively, our father, also known as God. My abuela readjusted the Jesus photo I never touched, took my hand, and led me a little further down the hall into the bedroom where once I had lived with her. The bedroom smelled of powder, Jergens hand lotion, and tigress perfume, just like any other ordinary church-going grandma type of woman. On top of the chenille bedspread was an ancient-looking cardboard photo album. My abuela sat down, opened it, removed one of the photos on the page, and handed it to me. It wasn't in black or white or in color. It was an artifact in shades of sepia brown, but lines of glue dried along its edges. A little girl with short, tight braids that looked like they hurt stood, seated, stood next to a seated older woman with a posture as straight as her chair's back. Standing behind the two was a younger woman with a flower in her long wavy hair. She was the only one smiling. My abuela looked at me as if I should know these people. And they looked vaguely familiar, but I wasn't sure, so I said nothing. My abuela waited another second and said, This is your mother, pointing to the child with the braids. She pointed at the woman smiling and said, This is me. And then, pointing to the woman in the chair, she said, and this is my mother, your great-grandmother. The woman in the chair was not the shriveled thing that I had known only from a hospital. Yes, a thing with foggy eyes from cataracts and glaucoma and, and with foggy eyes from cataracts and glaucoma and clenched bony fingers that gripped you with otherworldly strength. The only trace that she had once been human was her mane of straight, waist-length silver-blue hair. I used to watch my abuela brush it for her. I took the photo from my abuela for a closer look. Despite the sepia coloring, you could tell that her hair had been jet black. And her hands were not claws, but were long and smooth. Her unblemished skin was the color of a cinnamon stick. Her eyes had a clear, knowing gaze, and she had the highest, sharpest cheekbones I had ever seen. She looked like a princess or a priestess. She was beautiful. I put down the picture, walked over to our boiler's dressing table, and knelt on the bench to look in the mirror. My pale, yellow, round, fringed, freckled, ugh, my pale, yellow-tinged, round, freckled face and halo of frizzy red curls made me cry. Abuelita, I said, why don't I look like you? Why don't I look like great-grandma? Como? my abuela said. She was shaking her head because I always spoke English too fast for her to follow. Por qué? I began. Por qué? And my tears stopped and frustration set in. I was angry with myself for not knowing her words and angry with her for not knowing mine. Por qué yo no look like the familia? Oh, better you do, Abuela said. 
You have me, I, ¿cómo se dice en inglés? A mother of, mother of your, a uh, mother of your mother's padre. Ella tiene perrojo también. Y she was speaking entirely in Spanish now. But it didn't matter because I couldn't understand her. And I didn't believe her anyway. A couple of weeks later, my mother, grandmother, titis, which are aunties, my brother, my cousins, and I went to the Puerto Rican Day Parade together. We had never gone before, or at least I didn't remember ever going to this mid-June all-day celebration of all things Puerto Rican, Boricua, where the gente march, the musica plays, and the banderas wave. Cordoned off along the sidewalk stood tens of tens of thousands of varying shades of beige and brown pride crammed cabeza to cabeza, head to head, hombro to hombro, shoulder to shoulder, and nalgas to nalgas, swaying hips to swaying hips, letting New York City know, huepa, boricua, eso es nuestro día. We are Puerto Rican, and this is our day. Everyone, that is, except for me. Because I'd become separated from everyone in my family and meandered down crowded Fifth Avenue looking for the nice policeman my mother told me to find if I ever got lost. The fact that all the policemen were chasing and grabbing at a group of paraders who were shouting, Pariba, Babajo, Dos Puercos, Bacarajo, which means up, down, all around, pigs go to hell, puzzled me. Why were these people yelling about pigs? That was stupid. They were all going to be in trouble. I wasn't. I decided I was going to stand right where I was until the nice policeman came to me. And when that nice policeman finally came, I told him I was lost, and I followed him to a bandstand filled with men in white suits, guaynaraberas, and straw hats, and women in tight, pretty dresses and high heels. They were all very nice to me. They bought me a hot dog and a sundew and told me not to worry. They said my family would come, and please, sit down. I obeyed. I was tired from all that walking and waiting. And while I ate and drank with my best manners, because I remembered what my mother always said, people are watching you all the time, a loudspeaker screeched on. And I heard names. Herman Badillo, Geraldo Rivera, Pablo Guzman. Who were these people? I didn't care. I saw a good humor truck and wanted ice cream. Ooh, maybe I could get one of those pretty ladies to buy me a strawberry shortcake. My favorite. But before I had a chance to ask for ice cream, the, I could swear I heard the voice from the loudspeaker blare again. Will the family who brought the little red-headed white girl to the parade please come to the band shell to pick her up? Did I hear that right? Wait a minute. I was at the band shell. I looked around to see where that poor, unfortunate child who didn't belong here was but only saw grown-ups in suits and dresses looking everywhere but at me. And then it hit me. I was that lost girl. As I sat there holding my half-eaten hot dog and sundew, I cried for the first time since my abuela showed me the photograph of my great-grandmother. I was not a priestess like my great-grandmother. I was not a little girl in braids like my mother or a woman in a pretty dress like the woman at the parade. I had no idea where my family was or who I was. I was a fish out of agua. Hi, I'm Michelle Carlo, and you are listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. 
So now it's time for another song now that we're on the protest thing. So this is a song that um, from a group called Jefferson Airplane. It was really famous in the late 60s, I believe 1969. And it was, I think, a protest song about the Vietnam War. You know, every generation has its war. When I was a kid, it was Vietnam. Now the kids have Iraq. And when is it going to end? Anyway, here's the song by Jefferson Airplane, and it's called Volunteers of America. another thing to protest commercials on the radio so if you want to really support commercial free radio just go to radiofreebrooklyn.com and click on a patreon banner yes i believe for as little as ten dollars a month you can support a show any show of course i would like you to support fish out of agua but your support will um only cost as much as let's say a Myers rum and coke at you know a not so hot bar or a well drink at a really fancy bar so you know what to do. Radio Free Brooklyn and go and click on that Patreon banner. People often ask me what Fish Out of Agua is about. And I have my, what you call, elevator pitch right down from so many times of describing it. Fish Out of Agua is a story about a red-headed Puerto Rican growing up in an Irish-Italian neighborhood in the Bronx back in the 1970s. But it's also about a bit more than that. It's about a deep, dark family secret that impacted the relationship between my mother and me for over 40 years. We'll find out what that secret and other secrets in my family, the skeletons in my Latino closet were. But um, I want to talk right now about my abuela, my grandmother, my mother's mother, with whom I lived for a year and who was a very important part of my life for, for many reasons. And, um, you know, as always, 
relationships in life are complicated. Sometimes a person can do really well in one area and be totally lacking in another and be oblivious in another and just be a paragon of virtue and justice in another, just like all of us. But, you know, the abuela is the one that looks out for you. Your abuela is the one that has the distance that your actual parent doesn't have and can love you in a really, hopefully, different, vital, and special way. I wish, would wish that everybody would have the abuelas that I had, and here's a story about both of them. It's from Fish Out of Agua, and it's called A Tale of Two Abuelas. The first thing you need to know is that the abuela, or grandmother, is an integral part of every Latino child's life. Abuelas provide moral guidance by dragging you to their place of worship, be it católico, Luterano, Pentecostal, or the Way of the Saints. Catholic, Lutheran, Pentecostal, or Santeria. And there, they test you, wherever you are, by giving you the, except for the Santeria, obviously. But then again, I don't know, because I wasn't brought up like that. So anyway, when I was brought to the Catolico and the Pentecostal, the abuela will test you by giving you the envelope to put into the collection plate. And when you try to slip their $5.32 into your pocket, you better tengo cuidado. There are also valuable sources of medical knowledge and can discern between una monga, a feverish condition that isn't really a fever, cuerpo cotao, a general disability that isn't really debilitating, and dolor de los cocotazos, the headache caused by the rap of knuckles against your skull when you were caught placing the oral thermometer under a radiator in order to skip school and watch reruns of Bewitched. The abuela is also a dispenser of justice, usually in the form of la chancleta, the slipper. Whatever their provenance, all abuelas possess this unique weapon as well as the inherent expert knowledge of its deployment. Whoever invented the laser-pointed weapon must have grown up in a Latino household because when an abuela throws a chancleta, it morphs into a heat-seeking device with unparalleled pinpoint accuracy that will find you anywhere. It doesn't matter if you're under a bed, behind a door, or behind your younger sibling. The slipper will hit you square in the forehead. Bing! But abuelas don't just pass judgment. They also provide absolution. After all, they've lived longer than anyone else on their watch and have heard, seen, and done, or at least wanted to, it all before. And if you need someone to predict the future, nadie, no one, can do it like an abuela. My grandma Marisol, who we called Mari, was my mother's mother. She came from Corozal, Puerto Rico, a town near the center of the island named for La La Palma de Corozo, a type of palm tree. Today it is a modern city, but in the late 1930s it was just another mountain village caught in the Great Depression. As a single mother with a small child and an invalid mother to take care of, she had two choices, remarriage and emigration, or staying put and starving. Grandma Mari chose to remarry and come to the mainland where she hoped she would find the man who deserted her, my mother's father. She arrived in New York City in December of 1938, and in her 57 years she would live in Nueva York, she would have three more children, never master English, and never be reunited with her first love. 
My grandma Isabel, or Izzy, was my father's mother. She was also from Puerto Rico, from Cabarojo, a resort city on the island's southwest coast. That name means red tip or red cape. On an island where every coastal town claims to have the most beautiful beach, this one really does. Sorry, it really does. And it's called El Buye. Like Grandma Mari, Grandma Izzy also came to New York City as a newlywed. I have a photograph of her with my grandfather Ezekiel around 1928, in which you can tell she's just a teenager by the look on her round moon face. Her expression is free of frustration, resignation, and grief. The failed businesses, unfaithful husband, and five sons are all still ahead of her. Both of my abuelas were there for me the day I was born. According to my mother, it was the hottest day of the year when she unexpectedly went into labor. She was only eight months pregnant and wasn't prepared for it. When she started to feel pains on that mid-July day, my father was driving a forklift at a construction site somewhere in Queens. My mother's half-sisters, Carmen, Ophelia, and Dulce, who were all still teenagers, were out with their friends, and her one best friend, Daisy, was on her honeymoon. She called her mother, but Mari wasn't home either. My mom's stepfather, Papa Julio, worked nights and was annoyed by the early afternoon phone call, but agreed to leave Grandma a note. As usual, my mother was on her own. My mother grabbed her already packed little suitcase and jumped into a taxi. Columbia Presbyterian Sloan Hospital, 168th Street and Broadway, please. She leaned back against the seat and rolled down the window. Lucy had been warned against the horrors of childbirth, but she took pride in her ability to withstand pain. By the time she arrived at the hospital, the pain subsided. The resident who examined her said, your water hasn't broken, the, contraction, the contractions have stopped, and you're not due to the end of the month. False alarm, go home, take two aspirins, and take a nap. Back then, people listened to doctors, and my mother left to do just that. Except during the taxi ride home, her water broke, and the, contra and the contractions resumed violently. She told the driver to turn around and go back, quick. Hold it in, he said. No babies in my cab. When my mother got back to the hospital, she was immediately rushed into an operating room. Her little suitcase was left behind. She heard people say things. Breach! Caesarean! Stat! All of a sudden, Lucy felt a mask over her face, heard the tang of what she guessed to be a scalpel, and thought, after all I have been through... I do not want to feel this, so she inhaled the anesthesia as deeply as she could. As my mother went under, Grandma Mari burst into the hospital waiting room. Upon finding the note left by her husband, she ran the 12 blocks from her apartment with asthma and in high heels to get to her daughter. There is never a guagua, bus, or un taxi in Washington Heights when you need one, or when she needed one. Abuela had sensed something had gone wrong with either my mother or me, but no one would tell her exactly what. But she knew exactly what she had to do. As people streamed in and out of the waiting room, they beheld Grandma Mari, with her salt and pepper hair streaming out of two real tortoiseshell combs and her beaded straw summer handbag at her feet, leading a charismatic prayer. Many of the visitors joined in, although in support of what exactly, they weren't sure. It was a multi-generational, multi-ethnic congregation of minds, hearts, and Espiritu Santo. 
the Holy Spirit. A couple of hours into the prayer session, breathless from an hour-long bus ride from the Bronx, burst in Grandma Izzy. She was also in heels. Her bouffant was damp and collapsed, and her green patent leather pocketbook hung open. Bracelets jangled up and down her arms, and a crumpled pack of belairs was in her hand. Her keen hazel eyes scanned Grandma Armadi and the prayer group as she asked, Por favor, does anybody have a light? The last thing Grandma Izzy expected to find at the hospital was a mini Iglesia revival. The phone calls she had received from Grandma Mari had only said, Lucy is having the baby, come now. Now Grandma Izzy wasn't particularly religious and wasn't what you would call a joiner, but she did have cojones, nerve. She also had a good command of the English language and the inability to take maybe for an answer. So while Grandma Mari continued to pray, Grandma Izzy, who realized that something must have gone very, very wrong, canvassed the hospital floor until at last she found a doctor who told her that my mother would live, but that I might not. By this time, my father had arrived, going straight to the ICU and my soundly sleeping mother, along with the balance of both families, minus the night shift working Papa Julio. I was cut free in that late afternoon, cold and blue, with no guarantee of surviving. I had turned in the, moon, in the womb multiple times and became stuck, butt first and strangled by my own umbilical cord. It was a talent I would repeat in many variations many times later in my life. But to my family's relief though, the doctors resuscitated me and placed me in an oxygen pressure incubator, the rare and latest technology for treating infant asphyxia. I'm not sure if they stayed at the hospital that night. But the next morning, both of my grandmothers stood in front of a glass window that separated them from my incubator. The doctors warned them that even though I had lived, I had been without oxygen for nearly four minutes, and there was a 50% chance that I'd be mentally compromised, blind, or both. My grandmothers were as prepared for this as much as anyone could be. But what they weren't prepared for was a thrashing, squalling, carrot-topped bundle. As they stared at me through the glass pane, their conversation may have gone something like this. Grandma Mari, El Señor will decide if she lives. Grandma Izzy, No, she will decide. Grandma Mari, She will need us to protect her and guide her. Grandma Izzy, She will learn the only one you could depend on is yourself. Por favor, Mari. Do you have a light? Grandma Mari, Mija, no puede fumar aquí. Let's go outside and get un café. 36 hours after the two longest taxi rides of her life, my mother woke up with her jet black hair slowly turning white and a healthy baby girl to bring home. Even Grandma Izzy had to admit it was un milagro, a miracle, one that both of my grandmothers would always take full credit for. From Grandma Mari, I'd learned to find hope in things both unexpected and unseen. From Grandma Izzy, I'd learned that when you want something, you must try for it as hard as you can, pretty much any way you can. And when you think you can't possibly go any further, just take that one more step because that is when the door will open. That was the second chapter of Fish Out of Agua, a tale of two abuelas, and you are listening to 
Radio Free Brooklyn, Community Freeform Internet Radio. So I actually am sitting right here with um, a Radio Free Brooklyn host from season three named Jim Moore. Hi, Jim. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, we're neighbors here in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Woo! Actually, South Slope. And um, he is actually someone who was alive in the 1960s, just like I was. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, I was a child. I think you were a little bit older, right? I was. Were you born and raised here, Jim? No, but I moved to the, the Lower East Side in 1967 oh my god that was the summer of love right yeah yeah it was a great place to be was that when like people were hanging out like by the um the uh, not the band show the fountain in central park mountain in washington square park okay because my um my aunt one of my aunts and one of my um uncles told me that they used to hang out by the fountain in central park that that was a big place where teenagers and young people used to hang out and commune and do yeah. do things that teenagers did in the it, 1960s it was, it was all over the all over the city people were hanging out that was the city at the time it was uh, a lot of hippies, and uh, Lower East Side was basically Ukrainian, Polish, and hippies. Wow, So, th but there were a lot of Latino people back then, weren't they? Yeah, but not, not as many as later on. There were more people moved in there later on. I think the Latino population was probably a bit below Houston Street, and yes. above Houston Street was more of the Eastern European population. Correct. Is that that's, correct? That's correct. Yeah, because I seem to remember um, going to visit somebody that lived on Clinton Street. I'm, I don't even remember. Like, my, my, my grandmother like had, like, a million billion friends like we were always going like she was um like a missionary type of person and she would like i'm not gonna not a recruiter because that makes it sound like a cult she was like a missionary type of person with her iglesia pentecostal i mean mm -hmm. she and she was also a, like a healer a healer a curandera type woman and she would go and like pray for sick people everywhere she mm -hmm. actually used to go and minister to people in rikers island in the hospitals That's great. she was yeah when when um in spanish on sunday the first story that i read when I, I used to um, be taken by her to visit my great-grandmother, she would always bring like a quart of chicken soup, even though my grandmother was over 100 at the time and barely ate. During the whole week, she would eat what my grandmother brought. My grandmother would like wash her, comb her hair, feed her, and at least she would be like set for the week. So right. she was like one of those like magical women. Yeah supportive very supportive yeah 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 she was she was born under the sign of the crab like me i don't know maybe i have a little bit of it too anyway um do you were you involved in any of the protest stuff back then jim yeah i was involved in a lot of the protests back then um, really you weren't a weatherman were you no, no you can't say that on the air <laughs> my god don't hunt us down no i wasn't that radical <laughs> but yeah i was very much part of uh, protesting what was going on you know the government's intervention like, Vietnam War was a big like, deal like oh yeah it was a very big deal yeah yeah it was the wrong war it was a totally wrong war yeah. it was it was it was such a wrong war it it's you know sometimes I think that the last time people were really that organized for protests and all united was against Vietnam because I I remember um, the year that, like, you know, being at my grandmother's house in Washington Heights, I would be playing with, like, my color forms and my Barbies behind the couch. And my aunt and my uncles would, you know, they were all still very young then in their very early 20s. I don't, they may have been just married or about to be married. They were very, very young. And they would have their friends over. And I would just remember hearing these conversations about the movement and the establishment and the man. And if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. 
La bonita bandera, el pueblo unido, nunca serán dividido. And like, well, I'm not even like my mangled Spanish. I hope I don't get like calls saying, that girl doesn't know how to talk Spanish. To that, I say, I speak Spanish proudly like the American that I am. <laughs> and um, this is why, because the people of New Yorkans of a certain age like me, well, many times brought up by parents who insisted on speaking English in the house because when I was a child, there was no multiculturalism. And when my parents were children, there was no English as a second language. Like they threw you into the boiling pit of like the public school and either you learned how to speak English or you like died. And this is one thing I can say about New York City. If you can survive fifth grade in New York City, you could survive anything. <laughs> At least you're not speaking Spanglish. Oh, no, I can speak Spanglish. Pone su coat and vamos al rufo to eat your lonche, your sandwich, and then you go wait for the guagua, the bus. That's not, there's no such words. Oh, do you know I make Spanish up, Jim? Yeah. Oh, yeah, like there's a lot of times the language doesn't catch up with English. And I, okay, there was one time when um, everybody was in my grandmother's house, Grandma Mari, because my other grandmother moved to Florida when I was young. You'll find out about that in a few chapters from now. But I remember my brother and two of my male cousins were just like slugs on the couch watching football. And my grandma needs help. And like the three of them are just like, Ugh. and I just said, well, they're being Papa de Sofa, which I meant like couch potato. And there's no word for couch potato in Spanish, Jim. Right. So I was like, oh, they're just being Papa de Sofa. And like, this was like an international incident. This was like detente. This was like, like, like Reagan and Gorbachev. This is like Reagan complaining that he killed all the, the uh, Russian premiers. <laughs> and because like, there was like, no, you don't, you can't say that. There's no such word. You have to say bago, but it is also. And I'm like, no, those, those, that doesn't mean couch potato. And they're like, there's no such word. I'm like, well, there should be. <laughs> so that was my protest. <laughs> you made of your own words. Yeah. Did you used to go to places like the Fillmore East and stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was a usher. Really? At, at the Village Theater, which was the theater before Bill Graham took over and became the Fillmore East. It was called the Village Theater before that. Wow. And, that, and that's where I first saw the Doors perform and the James Gang and B.B. King. I was an usher in that theater for seven years. Oh wow, years. actual BB King. BB King, the real BB yeah, yeah, King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, 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 not the place in Times Square. He just yeah. died, right? Yeah, he recently died. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. Yeah. So, did you actually go to any protests? Yeah, oh, yeah, I went to all, all, a lot of protests. Yeah, I protested a lot of different times. Vietnam War was there were a lot of Vietnam War protests uh, because the war went on for too long. It went on for way. It just should never yeah. started. But anyway, yeah. let's like like any war, it should never have started. Yeah. Hey, did you ever meet John Lennon? Never met John Lennon. You never? But a good friend of mine performed for him. Really? Yeah, I performed for John's 40th birthday party. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is so poignant. Yeah. We we are recording the show in mid-November of, of 2017, and uh, John's... Uh, the, the anniversary of his assassination will be coming upon us soon. Mm. Wow, his 40th birthday. You know, in the neighborhood where we both live, which is in South Slope, Brooklyn, there are a lot of musicians in this neighborhood. Oh, yeah, a lot of good musicians. And down the block, um, my ex-husband used to walk dogs for a living and do, and do like pet sitting and house mm. sitting when people went away. Mm -hmm. And one of his clients was this man who had played on um, the album that... John and Yoko, John was recording when he, when he um, was shot. Yeah. Which, I mean... Uh, with the one with the two drawings? Or was the, is that a different one? Uh, like, I, I'm young, all right? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, what's, which is the album with the white cover and there's like two drawings of them? 
Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure which one that okay, is. Okay, whatever. If some, somebody yeah. knows, you you can email us and tell me I was wrong. But anyway, I want to play a John Lennon protest song now, now that I've just embarrassed myself completely. All right, I'm going to try to look this up and Google it. I'll spend a minute or two on it, and we'll figure this out. So anyway, this song was, um, an, again, from that era, around 1970, and it's by John Lennon. And I believe Yoko Ono was also singing on this, too. Plastic Ono Band, maybe it might be. And this song is called... Power to the people. 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 
I remember the first time that I, I heard that song, I was in the basement of Santa Maria Church. There was a community center in that in the bottom of that church, and it was there to supposedly keep us um, at-risk youth occupied and not out doing the dirty hippie things that everybody's parents were afraid that we would be doing. I mean, like, we were like eight and nine years old what were we, and 10 years old. What were we going to be doing? Oh, a lot. Let me tell you. Oh, my God. So we'd be downstairs and um, there was a, a jukebox which didn't have money. You just had you could just play a song and they had knock hockey and they had you know what knock hockey was? Yeah. OK. They had knock hockey. Or they the wooden pucks. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. And they had ping pong and they had a closet where the older kids used to go and make out. Yeah, fun. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun. It was fun. How about you? Um, yeah, so I lived in um, 67, 68, 69, Lower East Side, Seventh Street between Avenue C and D. Had a, a two-bedroom apartment on the fourth floor, which I shared with two other students, like myself, at School of Visual Arts. And our our rent was um, one hundred and forty dollars a month. We each paid like forty dollars. And actually, less than that. So it was what, 140 divided by three. I don't know what that is, but it's not very much money. So uh, it was amazing. We had a great time. It was a great experience. It had a lot of free concerts in Tompkins Square Park at the oh time. Oh my God! It I can only imagine. Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane performed for the free. In Jefferson the park. Airplane performed for free in Tompkins Square Park. Yeah. Did, did they play Volunteers of America? They played everything that was oh that popular. Oh my God! And there was a big band show was there, which is now gone. Right. And uh, well, they used to do Wigstock there. Yeah, Wigstock in, was in the very beginning. Later, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the yeah, 80s, yeah. I think that was. Yeah, right. please. I, I was I was inadvertently there when the Tompkins Square Park riot happened oh, in August dear. of 1989. It was crazy. Yes. But I don't want to talk about the 80s. It's not so, yet. We're talking about so the 60s there was, now. There was a uh, um, a wealthy young man who basically was very much for the legalization of marijuana. Ooh. And he would hire, um, he, on several occasions, when there was a free concert in the park, he would hire a helicopter and fly over the park and drop like a thousand joints into the park. For reals? For real. And then the, the cops oh couldn't God. do anything because everybody was smoking. The cops couldn't bust everybody, so everybody just That's would, true. Would smoke. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. And, like, okay, I wonder how many states did legalize marijuana this time around. I think a couple two. more. Two. Which ones were they? Massachusetts and... I forget the other one. Oh my, like, yeah. Well, you know, we're full of errors here. You know, next time, I swear to God, I will... I'll swear, no, I shouldn't even say that. I swear on my red hair, I will spend at least five minutes Googling things. <laughs> oh, like the album cover the that um, the person that I knew like 20 years ago, it, I think it was the one with all the drawings on it. And, oh, God, Shave Fish. I believe it was Shave Fish. But anyway... Um, yeah, John Lennon album. John Lennon album. Yeah, the right. one, the one that um, the person that I know that lives in our neighborhood, like he played on. on oh, on he that. played on that yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, Got yeah, it. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God! But you went to school of visual arts. Yeah, I was school of visual arts for two years. Uh, oh my God! Before I transferred to New York University. I went to school of visual arts. You did. I did. did you I did. There? Yes, I did. I graduated. It oh. took me a long time, but I graduated. And the funny thing is, is when I graduated, which was in the mid '80s, which we're not talking about yet because we're talking about the '60s now. But um, my friends wanted to move to the East Village. Oh. They all wanted to move to the East Village, and I was like, mm, share your teeny tiny, no heat, top floor tenement walk up with the junkies and the bums and drunks in the hall that you have to step over. No thanks. Been there. The neighborhood was like that then? Um, in, the the, in the East Village? I thought it was all yeah. like happening with galleries no, and no. stuff. Well, no, they were, they were going to live in Avenue C. Oh, I see. They were going to live in Avenue C. I, I, think, I think a couple of them moved actually moved into what C-Squat is. And maybe in an alternate lifestyle, I would have ended up being like Rosario Dawson's like au pair or something, but that was not to be. Because <laughs> after I graduated, 
I'm a, not long after that is when I moved here to Brooklyn. Oh. I've, I've been living in South Slope um, since 1988, the beginning of 88. I've lived in this neighborhood since a few months after that poor boy was eaten by that bear in the horrible old Prospect Park Zoo. Mm, wow. Yeah. I didn't know about that. I know. That's crazy. You didn't know about that? Oh, no. my God. You could you can look it up. Uh, yeah. I think it was May 19th, 1987, boy eaten by bear in Prospect Park Zoo. Wow. Yeah, I know. And there was actually a kind of a protest that happened after that. I mean, not like people taking to the streets and stuff, but um, the the zoo was shut because there was a great public outcry because oh. animals were just kept in horrible conditions, oh, like yeah. giant animals in these tiny little metal cages. And, mm. you know, you have like something like a like a leopard in a little cage that basically going insane. Yeah. And anyway. Cruelty to animals. Oh, it was terrible. But it was cruelty to people, too. Um, what What... Did you ever witness any, like, um, police brutality in the protest? Like, did people, like, um, shoot rubber bullets at you? Or did they, like, no, do, like... I never had anything to me, but I did see other people get taken down by the police, pushed down to the floor and, you know, hit with Tommy clubs and stuff like that. And, but it was, it was uh, you know, it was a terrifying time to be in New York in a way, you know. Yeah. It was, you know, it was, the rents were cheap, but there was a lot of uh, terror in the streets, because the state of the city was pretty bad. It was really graffiti bad. Graffiti was big time, you know. Well, the graffiti, I think, more came about in the early 70s, right? Yeah, yeah. later. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah, later, a yeah. little bit later than that. I actually was involved in the periphery of the beginning of graffiti. We'll find that out a few chapters from now. But, um, yeah, I mean, people, you know, there's a parallel to the end of the 60s and the early 70s yeah, and today, yeah. right now, because people now think that everything is just so horrible and the world is going to hell in a hot air balloon. But people thought the same thing in the late 60s yeah. and early 70s. My mom said that people thought that 1968 was the absolute worst year ever mm. because it was like everything was poised on the wrong end of a so end of a sword and people thought that with the next riot the next protest that there was going to be total and complete anarchy and we would all be lying in the gutters with our throats slit open from ear to ear and mm. it and it didn't happen mm, thank gosh it didn't happen no. it didn't happen and i'm praying that um a solution is found it doesn't happen now because you know the temperature seems right for a boil over yeah, at be. this point it's already boiling over protesting all over the place i know i know and 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 well um and as well people should because people have a lot to be angry about well i think i think in order to really i mean we'll see what he does but i think that we have to like obama said we have to keep an open mind and give him a chance so once <sighs> he has a chance then we'll see what he does I don't know. There's a lot of people. That's that's the prudent view. But I know there's yeah, a lot of people. I'm, I'm Buddhist. I know. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people that do not share that. They just want to tear the thing down now. They yeah. just want to tear it all down. But I don't know. We can speak our minds here because this is commercial free radio. But, you know, if you're going to tear the system down, you better have something to put back in its place. Exactly. Be, otherwise, like, then what's going to happen? You know, like I'm sorry, I'm 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 selfish. Like I I want I want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta feed my cats. Yeah. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm talking about my cats when this like it's, you could tell Park Slope problems, please. And ugh. um, so when are we going to come back? Oh no, next week we're going to have the next two chapters of Fish Out of Agua. We're gonna have some more songs, and um, we're gonna have a Thanksgiving story. There you go. Yeah. Nice. So how much more time do we got to fill up here? <laughs> you can tell this is my first time doing anything like this. Oh, my God. I am like having such a good time. If you have at, 
30 seconds. We have 30 seconds left. All right. I promise I'll be more prepared next week. I think you all are fabulous. Um, listen to the next show that's coming on afterwards if you want. I have no idea what it is, but well, I'm sure. All the shows are fun. All the shows are fun. And we're all getting along as best we can. And um, I want you all to be safe. And I want you all to have a good weekend. And I want everybody. Why is this clock going so slow? <laughs> Jim, say something quick. All right. Anybody want to listen to old shows from Radio Free Brooklyn? Go to Mixcloud or what's the other one? Um, Audio, Audio Boom. Boom. Audio Boom. Audio all Boom. All the shows are, are, are archived there. All and, right. And, and now and... here is the official closing for Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you. So we've had some stories, we've had some songs, we talked about protests, we talked about the 60s and the 70s, and now it's time to leave until next week. But I want to close out with um, a New Eurekan song because Fish Out of Agua is, after all, a New Eurekan story. And this is a real classic song about the flag. It's called La Bonita Bandera, and it's about the beauty of the Puerto Rican flag which, as you probably know, is an offshoot of the American flag. It's the same colors. It has a few stripes. It has one star. And it's what we wave when we people go to the Puerto Rican Day Parade. And it's like, huepa, boricua. We are Puerto Rican, and this is our day. This has been Michelle Carlo with the radio show Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn, Internet Community Freeform Radio. La Bonita Bandera. ¡Gracias!